Okay. Move in. <laughs> Greek Bible, English Bible, notes. Okay, we're all ready to go. Okay, um, how many people here for the first couple of days, the, you know, the, the, the intimacy with Jesus thing? Okay, so you're scattered throughout. Well, I'm going to repeat some things. I hope that's okay. Um, I couldn't come up with whole new introductions to the gospel, so. Uh, um, well, thanks for coming. Um, this is going to be hard work. It's not going to be fun. Well, it'll be fun, but it's not going to be... Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work because uh, I'm going to ask that you really engage and really listen. And uh, so what I want to do first off is talk about the voices of the other three gospels because we're going to try to tune into Mark's voice. It's very distinctive. Um, okay. So, I'm, you know, forget the pleasantries. Let's just, let's get going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus' favorite Bible verse. Jesus' favorite Bible verse. We know what it is. At one point, someone asked him, what's the most important verse in Scripture? He quotes it. Um, in another place, someone comes to him and says, what's the most important uh, verse? And Jesus says, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? And the guy quotes it, and Jesus is right. Uh, and it's, it, it's this verse, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ha'avta et Adonai Elohecha, Bekol Levavka, Bekol Lefeshka, Bekol Me'odecha. Hear, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is the great statement of monotheism, um, that God is a unity, that God is one, um, and the second half, that we must love the Lord with all of our hearts, uh, with all of our souls. And the last word is untranslatable, which I, I'm, I'm kind of into untranslatable word. It's, it's a simple word, maod, which means many, but it's kind of weird. You love the Lord with your manyness, with your muchness. So I, I translate it, you love him with everything that you are. So listen to the first two uh, mandates. The first one is to, to listen here is a traditional way to translate it, but it's not, it's not as good. It's more direct, you know, to, to listen. The, the mandate for the second half is to love. So those are the two ideas behind Jesus' favorite Bible verse. And my, my mentor, uh, William Lane, who I'll be referring to almost constantly, a lady complained to me one time. She said, after I hear you talk, I feel like you want me to ask William Lane into my heart. And... Uh, <laughs> I apologize, but he, you know the person who sort of turns you on to Scripture is a, is, becomes an important person in your life. So I apologize if I I'll try not to talk about him too much. But I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. So, um, but Dr. Lane used to say that what the Shema really teaches us, and in in Orthodox Judaism we pray this three times a day. It's the central creed of Judaism. In fact, a sidebar: if I stand over here and say something, it's not going to be on the test. It's a sidebar. Okay. Um, if you go to, uh, I take groups to Israel a lot. If you go to, uh, go with me to Israel, we have a friend, Moshe, who's a rabbi and he has a trick question. He always does this to us and we always, you know, we always fall for it. He'll say, what's the first commandment? Of course, we all know, have no other gods before me, right? He'll say, wrong. First commandment is Shema. First commandment is listen. That's where it starts. Okay. So if you ever get, you know, some... Jewish person tries to trick you with that. Now you're, now you're ready. So, but Bill used to say that uh, what the Shema really teaches us is that the best way to love God is to listen to him. The best way to love anybody is to listen to him. You want to love your, your spouse? Stop doing things for them. Because I don't know about you, my problem is that's what I think. I mean, I bring my wife coffee and I... I, uh, you know, do, do things for her. But the best way to love someone is to listen to them. The best way to love God, Mother Teresa used to say, stop doing things for him <laughs> and listen to him. So the best way to love someone is to listen to them. And so as we come to Mark, we got to ask ourselves, so how do we do that? I mean, biblically, how do we listen? How do we really engage and uh, again, we come back to the second part of the Shema. 
We love God with all our heart, all our, all our mind, and everything we are with all our heart and all our mind. Um, are we all, I mean, I'm a pointy-headed fundamentalist. When I say that, that's a good thing. Okay, that's a, I'm proud to say that. Okay, somebody once thought I was running down fundamentalism. I'm a pointy-headed fundamentalist. That's a good thing. Okay, F-H-F. Okay, no, P. P-H, I'm a P-H-F. Pointy-headed fundamentals, yeah. Um, and um, if, you're a, if, you're, if you believe in fundamentals, the fundamentals uh, of the scripture, you believe in the fall. We all believe in the fall? Is there anything that is so obvious as the fact that this world isn't the way it should be? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, you know, the most raw pagan should be able to look at this world and say, it's messed up. It's messed up, okay? And part of the, what's wrong with the world is that we are fragmented. We are a fragmented people in all sorts of ways. But part of that fragmentation is, is the break between our heads and our hearts. And you see this in the way people approach scripture. Uh, some people are head people. Um, they like to argue and they like to be right. In fact, the most extreme head people think that going to heaven is based on being right, salvation by the, having the correct theology. Um, some people are heart people. My best friend, Scott Rowley, is a heart person, which means when he reads the Bible, he's going to cry, right? He's all heart. Now, there's nothing ultimately wrong with either of those. I mean, God gave you your brain, and you should use it. It's a good thing to engage with Scripture with your brain. It's a good thing to engage with Scripture with your heart. But what the Bible is trying to do is get all of us, our whole person. It, it defragments us. It, 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 uh, it knits us back together. And it does that by um, speaking to that part of us that, that integrates our heads and our hearts, and that's our imagination. The Bible is not a book of theology. We make theology out of it, and that's okay. The Bible is a book of stories and songs and parables, narrative, right? The Bible is trying to recapture your imagination. If it was just a matter of information, God could have dropped a book from the sky. And there are some religions that think that's how it works, right? He drops a book from the sky. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He comes to us through the incarnation. This compelling, um, endlessly fascinating person of Jesus. And we look at his life and we engage. His life demands, in fact, he demands that we engage. Uh, when Jesus tells a parable and he concludes it by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him shema. I'm almost certain that's probably the word he would have used. Uh, if you got ears to hear, then you better listen. That's Jesus' way of saying, if you don't engage with this, you're not gonna get it, right? Because that's not how he teaches. How does he teach? He steps up without any introduction, without any explanation, and he'll say something like, a man was going down the road and fell into the hands of men of violence who beat him and left him for dead. Then he'll tell a story. The longest one, I timed it once, I think it was 57 seconds. The longest parable of Jesus takes about 50 some odd seconds to read. Hey, how you doing? Okay? And then, with one exception, he walks off. He, he explains the seed parables. That's the only parable he explains. He explains those privately to the disciples because they're about to go out and spread the seed and they don't know what it is and he has to explain it to them. Otherwise, he doesn't explain things because parables don't work that way. Okay? We, we think we're going to explain them and squeeze them dry and move them on. That's not how parables work because the Bible and Jesus' teaching and his incarnation is trying to engage all of us. And if you don't engage, you're not going to get this. It's not point one, point two, point three. okay, this could be on the test. That's not how we learn. That's not really how we learn. So, um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to love God by listening to this incredible document, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, all kinds of stuff is going to happen. All kinds of cool things are going to happen, okay? Um, so when we engage, when we listen, what are the things we listen to? 
Um, I think I've got three or four. Sometimes I can't remember the fourth one, but here's the first one we listen to. When we're listening to Mark with our imaginations, first thing we're going to listen to is the voice of Mark. And that's why we're going to take time to listen to the voices of the other three gospels. All distinct, they're all obviously distinctive people with distinctive backgrounds. They, I, I, can, I can teach you about a dozen basic principles and you'll hear a verse and you'll go, oh, that sounds like Mark. If the word amaze is in the verse, that's Luke. If it's a story about a person who should get it and doesn't, and a person who shouldn't get it and does, that's Luke. If it's, if it's, a, it's, a, if it's a statement that helps to identify someone, who someone is, that's probably Matthew. If it has the word kingdom in it, it's probably Matthew. Uh, there, there, there are some basic principles. That their, their voices are, are, of course, they're eloquent voices, but they're all different. And the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, the nuances. Now, if you're like me, I grew up in, in uh, Sunday school. They said you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptics, right? They're basically all the same. And then John, 92% unique. So the, you lump the synoptics over here, and then, then we all, of course, we all love John anyway, but John is 92% unique. But the, the more I've studied the other three, the synoptics, the with one eye, that's what synoptic means, with the one, the one eye gospels, the more I've appreciated how different their voices are. So the first thing we listen to is the voice, okay? Second thing we listen to is the life situation, if we can determine it, uh, the life situation of, uh, of the book or the letter. This works with Paul too, by the way, it works marvelously with Paul. Who, who is Mark writing to? And in the, in, the, in the situation with Mark, we know. We know the life situation of Mark very well. Luke, we're not really sure. I've got a really cool idea that I hope is true. Uh, but we're, we don't really know about Luke. Matthew, we have a good idea. John, we have a very good idea what John, who John is speaking to. Okay. Uh, so you listen to the voice of the author. You listen to the life situation. And then this is, a, this is kind of a fun one. You listen to what they don't say. Because part of communication, you know, like 90% of it's nonverbal. So you have to learn to listen to what the gospel doesn't say. And what does that mean you have to do? That means you have to become so familiar with the other three gospels that you recognize, wait a minute, he just left something out. And Mark, uh, Mark is a fun one to do that with. Uh, of course, John is the main one. You know, we'll, and we'll see that. I'll, I'll point that out in a minute when we look at John. Um, okay, so you listen to... Um, the author, you listen to the life situation, uh, you listen to what they don't say, and I've already forgotten what the, oh, and you listen to the structure. Ah. Well, my mind is working after all. You listen to the structure, and that sounds so boring, but it's not boring at all. It's actually really exciting to see the structure of the gospel. Uh, if you've got uh, a red letter Bible, just flip through Matthew, and you're going to see five blocks of red letters. That's the structure of Matthew. Pretty easy. Uh, we're going to see that the structure of Mark is determined by the very first verse. Did you know the first verse of Mark is the table of contents? Really interesting. Mark isn't based, it's in two parts. Uh, so you, you learn to listen to the structure, okay? So that's pretty basic. Pretty basic. So let's listen. Let's talk about the four, the four voices. And we'll start with Matthew, although Matthew was We don't go in chronological order. We'll go in the order that they are in the Bible. Let's talk about Matthew. Matthew is a hard gospel to do some of this with. First of all, we know virtually nothing about Matthew. Matthew's not even his name. What's his name? Levi, right. I'm convinced, and, uh, and I, I'm gonna be as, I'm gonna be blatantly honest with you. I'm not gonna play the, 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 the game that sometimes teachers play um, my academic reason for thinking this is because I really want this to be true. I'm just being honest with you. I don't think, I, I, obviously Matthew's not his name. I'm convinced that Matthew is a nickname that Jesus gave him. Why do I think this? Because he gave other disciples nicknames. We know Peter. Peter's not his name. What's his name? Simon, right? Cephas. Uh, Boanerges. Uh, Didymus. So we have three or four examples of nicknames. And I think Matthew is a name, the nickname that Jesus gave me. How do, I, how do I believe, how have I come to believe this? Well, community that, that I've spent a lot of time in lately, well, in the last 30 years, um, uh, people give each other nicknames. 
Now, in my community, we never did that, but it, when, when you're accepted, you get a nickname. We got a guy in our group named, uh, his name is Morris. And this is in the in uh, public housing uh, area of where, where I live. We have a Bible study, uh, that, that kind of thing. Morris. And uh, Morris came to Bible study one time with his flip-flops on, and one of his toes was missing. And I said, Morris, I gotta, I, you got to tell me. What, what about the toe? He says, have you ever heard of a 410 shotgun? <laughs> he shot his toe off when he was 14 years old. So guess what his nickname is? Mow the toe. Yeah, mow the toe. I still don't have a nickname yet, and I want one so bad because I don't feel like I'm part of the community yet. But, so anyway, so I'm, I'm convinced that Matthew is, uh, is a nickname, a ter- term of endearment. We know he's a tax collector, and I think it's been way over-preached. We do know that tax collectors were outsiders. They were looked upon as traitors. They are listed in the uh, Mishnah along with murderers and adulterers. Okay, we know all that. But guess what? In the ancient literature, there are very few complaints against tax collectors. They're just part of this whole corrupt you know, system that is Rome, that is squeezing the people dry. And, and one of the great indications we have is when one of the tax collectors comes to John the Baptist, he's repentant, and he says, what do I do? And what, remember what John said? Just, yeah, don't take more than you're supposed to. So that's, that's kind of who Matthew is. Um, there's a very good chance that one of his brothers is uh, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and this is how we figured that out. In one list, Matthew is described as the uh, son of Alphaeus, and in a different list, James, we call him James the Less, James is described as the son of Alphaeus. There were two men who are in different places described as the son of Alphaeus. So if that, if that all holds together, they're brothers. You know what that means? That means that half of the disciples are brothers. How cool is that? Uh, okay, another sidebar. Uh, what does that mean? I just said, what does that mean? I'm learning to, a- to ask that question, and I want you to learn to ask that question. So uh, I'm in, I'm in uh, uh, Israel last year, and this rabbi that I referred to, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking to him. And we're talking about whether Jesus is kosher or not, having this discussion. Because I want to pick his brain. See, no, he has a very high tolerance for Christians. He's a good, sweet guy. So I said, of course he's kosher. He goes to Jerusalem three times a year. For goodness sakes, he walks all the way down there. One route is 90 miles. One route's 120 miles. He does that three times a year. And this rabbi says, yeah, but what does that mean? I said, what are you talking about? He said, what does that mean? I said, why don't you tell me? He said, it means that Jesus spends three months out of every year walking back and forth to Jerusalem. That blew my mind. So I'm starting to learn to ask this question. When you have a fact, you stop and ask, but what does that mean? What does it mean that he's from Galilee? What does that mean? What does it mean that he's kosher? You know? So uh, anyway, um, sidebar's over. You'll get tired of sidebars before it's all over. So we know he's a, we know he's a, a tax collector. He's in, we see him in Capernaum, so we just sort of assume that he lives there. There's a major uh, trade route, uh, one of the oldest roads in the world, by the way, that goes right by Capernaum. Uh, but he doesn't open his mouth. You know, it doesn't say a single word. So we don't have that. So there, there's Matthew. So it's somewhat, somewhat uh, mysterious. Uh, one of the most concrete uh, things we know about Matthew t- is, comes to us from one of the church fathers, one of the very earliest church fathers, Papias. And Papias tells us that Matthew collected the logia of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. Now that makes sense to me. He's a tax collector. He keeps records. He knows how to do that. So when he comes to faith, what does he decide he's going to do? Well, I'm going to organize all the sayings of Jesus. And once again, when you flip through Matthew, what do you got? You got five blocks of the sayings of Jesus. And some of those sections, you can tell, they're, they're just sayings that have been put together. They're not especially in a certain context, but they're a, a collected blocks, uh, block of his saying, okay? So uh, uh, what else? Oh, I see, he's not as interested in what Jesus did. Uh, he's more interested in what he said. That's how I say that. Uh, not a terribly intimate gospel uh, like Mark or John. 
Okay, so that's basically who, who Matthew is. Let's talk about the life situation, which I think really makes Matthew come, come to life. Um, Matthew was written right around 70, uh, we think. And the, the, the date that every Christian should know is 70 AD. We should all know this date. And here's why. Before 70 AD, there, there really isn't such a thing as Judaism. I know that bothers you. It should bother you. I'm quoting Isaiah Gaffney, who is a Jewish scholar. Isaiah Gaffney says, before 70 AD, what we have are Judaisms. And you already know this from reading the gospel. And it was his way of saying, Jesus' world is very fragmented. Judaism is not one thing in Jesus' world. And you already know this, right? What do we got? We got priests who are in the temple, priests and Levites who are in the temple. Uh, the temple, by the way, in Jesus, it's Herod's temple. The Holy of Holies is an empty room. There's no Ark of the Covenant in there, right? It's an empty room. Uh, it, it has become a very corrupt system. We know this from their indications of this in the Gospels. And we know from, from other uh, historians that guess, guess who appointed the high priests in Jesus' day? The Romans. At one point after Jesus, around 40, the Romans actually appointed a man who was mentally handicapped as high priest just to get under the Jewish people's skins. That's, the, that's Jesus' world. Okay? Now, Jesus still loves the temple, doesn't he? He loves everything that it represents, but it's become a pretty corrupt system. So we got priests whose power base is the temple. Now we got, also got Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisee uh, movement is relatively new. Um, there are seven different groups of Pharisees. They divide themselves into seven groups. So that, even the Pharisees aren't one thing. We have very extreme Pharisees, the followers of a rabbi whose name was Shammai, uh, Shammai killed people. His disciples killed people that disagreed with them. Okay, he's a bad guy. Then we have people like Hillel, who is one of my heroes. I have a T-shirt with his name on it. I love Hillel. Hillel was the grandfather of Gamaliel, who Paul studied with. And Hillel was a very, uh, a very Christ-like person in a lot of ways. He's roughly contemporaneous with Jesus. I'm convinced. What's my academic reason? I really want it to be this way. I'm convinced that when Jesus is 12 and he talks to the teachers in the temple, I'm convinced that one of those people is Hillel. Because at that point, Hillel was part of the temple movement. He was helping Herod build the temple because he was an expert in scripture and that sort of thing. But Hillel was this lovely man who, who introduced the idea that... Uh, uh, Shammai would say, when, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, if you're righteous enough... God will set aside your sins. Hillel said, no, no, no. He washes them away. Hillel was that sort of person. Hillel loved Gentiles. Had a great heart for Gentiles. Uh, Shammai said, when God created Gentiles, he made a mistake. <laughs> now figure that one out from an orthodox rabbinic point of view. So anyway, uh, so we got the Pharisees. Got priests over here with the temple, that's their power base. We got Pharisees over here, and their power base is the synagogue. Synagogue. Uh, we know so little about the synagogue. We don't even know where it started. It must have started in Babylon, but we, the scholars can't, they can't find this, they can't figure this out where it started. But we have, the, we have these local, synagogue means gathering. People get together. Um, and that's, the, that's where the Pharisees sort of do their thing. So then we have the Essenes, right? Out in the wilderness, but also, they also have a, a neighborhood in Jerusalem. Uh, the Essenes are these people who say, we're gonna be as pure as the high priest, okay? Uh, we have the Herodians. We're not really sure who the Herodians are. Some people think that Herodian is the New Testament's name for Essene that that's, that's the New Testament writers, that's what they call the Essenes. We don't know. There's so much we don't know. Then we have the followers of John the Baptist. Who in the world is this guy? He's baptizing Jews. You don't baptize Jews, you baptize Gentile converts. And he's doing his thing in the Jordan and the Jews are sitting there arguing. They're saying, is this ceremonial cleansing? What is this guy doing? John the Baptist. And we're gonna see from Mark's gospel that Jesus 
Ministry begins with John the Baptist and their cousins, by the way. How cool is that? Their cousins. And into this mix. Oh, and, they, and by the way, no one agrees on anything. And you know this as well from the Gospels. They don't agree on canon. There actually isn't a canon yet. Uh, the priests only accept the Torah. They do not accept the prophets. Have you heard what the prophets say about the priests? Right? No, they don't like the, the, the prophets. So they only accept the books of Moses, the Torah. The Pharisees, they love the, the, uh, the law and the prophets. No one knows what to do with the wisdom writings. Job, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's not until after 70 that we have the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's a post-70 thing. So anyway, have I made my case? Very fragmented. And into this world comes Jesus and his ministry. And again, you, you already knew all this from reading the Gospels and reading Paul. So... 70 AD happens. What's that? What happens in 70 AD? Well, the, the destruction of Jerusalem happens. Uh, Vespasian begins it, and then he goes off to Rome to become emperor, and his son Titus stays, and they break through the walls, and they take the city. And one thing you need to know that I think is very important, the Jews were killing each other inside the walls. It's not like the Romans are the bad guys on the outside and the, the Jews are all on the inside fighting. They're killing each other. The more uh, uh, observant, pious Jews are killing the less and their mothers that are taking food out of their babies' mouths. And there's one horrific story in uh, Josephus about a woman who actually uh, cannibalized her own child. Uh, Jeru the, 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 the fall of Jerusalem was just horrific. But anyway... The, the Romans come in, they set fire to the temple, burn it to the ground, and Judaism becomes one thing. That's why 70 AD is important. After 70 AD, Judaism is one thing, it's Phariseeism. Because the Pharisees are the only group left standing. See, temple's gone, priests, they're done, right? Priests, Levites, you're done. Essenes, Romans killed all of them. And what happens, and, and we have this from multiple sources, mainly Josephus. Josephus is our best source. But two Pharisees, two very well-known Pharisees came to Titus and they said, we are no threat to you. One of them was Josephus. The other one was a man whose name we should all know as Christians. His name was Johanan ben Zakkai. Johanan John ben son of Zakkai, Z-A-K-K-I. He came to Titus and said, um, give me the city of Yavne and I will go there and we will reform Judaism. And Titus says, you can't stay in Jerusalem. The Jews were kept from Jerusalem, right? They, they weren't allowed back. So Johanna ben Zakkai goes to this little city called Yavne and reforms Judaism. And that's when we have law, prophets, writings, belief in resurrection, belief in angels, we have a synagogue service before 70 AD. We don't know what the synagogue service was like. Now, we believe that the synagogue service that they gave us was based on you know, an earlier pattern, but we just don't know. We see Jesus standing up and reading from the, the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, is it Isaiah or Jeremiah? Isaiah? Okay. I should know that. Um, but we don't know. But after 70, we have a synagogue service. We have... A, we have, we have Judaism is one thing, and that is so important if we're going to understand uh, the Gospels, because Mark is written before, and Matthew is written, we think, right around 70. Why do we think that? Because part of what happens when Judaism becomes one thing is that we've got to get the Christians out, right? The life situation of Matthew, it's at a time when Judaism is reforming, and part of that reformation, the Nazarenes, the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, that was one of the first things they called us, Nazarenes. Um, we've got to get them out. And how do we do that? Uh, it's very interesting. In Yavne, they came up with uh, the, the 18th benedictions. It's still prayed uh, every Sabbath in the synagogue. It's called the Amidah. Amidah means to stand up. You stand up when you pray, and that was a new innovation too. 
praying together, that was a new innovation. See, when Judaism becomes one thing, all these things change. So we got the 18 benedictions. I'm going someplace. I I can sense I'm losing. I feel the energy go down in the room. This is going to be cool. I'm going to make this cool in about two minutes. Okay? Uh, So... Johannem and Zakkai, they're over here in Yavne and they're reforming Judaism and they say, we're going to have synagogue service and we're going to have 12 or 18 benedictions. And let me read uh, what, a couple of them that they came up with. Um, here is uh, number one. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the great and mighty and most revered God who bestows Chesed, loving kindness, and is the master of all things. I could pray that in my church, couldn't you? I say amen. Great. Way to go, Johannan. Okay, here's another one. Here's four. Blessing number four. You favor men with knowledge and teach mortals understanding. Favor us with knowledge, understanding, and discernment uh, from you. Blessed art thou, O Lord, gracious giver of knowledge. Awesome. I can pray that. Let me pray number 12. This is going to be a problem. This, is, this was formulated in 70 AD in Yavne to get the Christians out. And for slanderers, let there be no hope. And let all wickedness perish as in a moment. Let all your enemies be speedily cut off and the dominion of arrogance uprooted and crushed. Cast down and humble speedily in our days. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who breaks the enemies and humbles the arrogance. That's number 12. It was a prayer, and the original one, I've got an older version that came from Egypt that, that, that contains two words, the Nazarenes and the Minim. The Minim, Minim means heretic. We were the Min, the Minim. We were the heretics. You know, the Romans called us Romans call us atheists. That's the world of Matthew's readers. That's why I'm making such a big deal of this. The world of the readers of the, math, of the Gospel of Matthew, these are Jewish believers who are sitting next to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the synagogue, and all of a sudden we have a new synagogue service that incurs, in, includes a curse on us. What happens when, when you're a Jew and you're kicked out of the synagogue? You don't know who you are anymore. You lose your identity, right? You know the phrase, you're dead to me? That comes from Judaism. If you have a child that converts, that's what you say. You're dead to me. You no longer exist. And you're not just thrown out of a building, the synagogue. You're thrown out of Jewish life. No Jewish person can give you food. No Jewish person can let you in their house, okay? Those are the readers of Matthew's gospel. See how important it is to understand the life situation? And and so how do we see this in Matthew's gospel? We listen to what the other gospels don't say. And Matthew is is the only gospel in which Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And John, he says he is, and he is. But Matthew remembers, at one point Jesus told his followers, you're the light of the world. Only in Matthew. You're the salt of the earth. Only in Matthew. Jesus is telling them who they are because they don't know who they are anymore. And most importantly, we all know the major theme of Matthew. What's the word he uses? I mean, every couple of verses. He uses the word kingdom. Matthew is all about the kingdom. That's his major theme. Why is that his major theme? Because he's telling his readers, you are not disenfranchised, you are part of a kingdom and Jesus is the king. That's why kingdom is so important. John is not interested in the kingdom, not so much. The other gospels aren't so much interested. But for Matthew, it's very important because he's speaking to the life situation of the people he's writing to, okay? So uh, have I beat that that horse to death? Um, Yeah. Oh, let's, let's keep moving. Let's talk about Luke. Have, have you, uh, let me read to you where they meet. I bet you haven't, I'm guessing you probably haven't seen this. Have you ever met the, read the passage where uh, Luke meets uh, Paul? Say no. 
no, Michael, why don't you tell us? I'd be glad to. I'm not gonna tell you where it is, just listen. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They, listen, had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Does that bother you? That bothers me. The Holy Spirit doesn't want them to go up to Asia? That's weird. Nothing like that is said anyplace else in Acts. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What? What's happening? They try to go north, and the Holy Spirit says, no, can't go here. They try to go south, Spirit of Jesus says, no. They're being funneled to Troas. Um, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia. They becomes we. And who's the writer of Acts? Luke. That's where Luke joins them. How cool is that? I just, if, if you don't think that's cool, there's just something wrong with you. That's cool. <laughs> Okay, we know a lot about Luke, don't we? We know a lot about Luke. We know uh, he was a companion to Paul. They have this sort of uh, interesting uh, relationship. Paul refers to him first in Philemon as just one of his fellow workers. Uh, by the time he writes Colossians, uh, he refers to him as his dear friend. And he's clumped with uh, Demas, Luke and Demas. Um, by, uh, by the end of his life, uh, in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul will say, only Luke is with me. So Luke is a remarkable man. Paul refers to him as a doctor, as a physician, so we know he's a doctor. And um, he, um, I want to make a very strong case for the fact that I believe Luke is a slave. Let me give you my reasons. First of all, he's a doctor, and in, in the first century, most professional people were slaves. Uh, what a slave culture does to you, it doesn't make you aspire to be anything. It, it makes you aspire to do nothing. Uh, I'm from the South. We had a slave culture. No one aspired to be doctors and lawyers. They aspired to be the planter elite who did nothing. That's what slavery does to you. It's not just bad for the slaves, which it is. It's bad for everybody. So in the first century, most professional people were... Uh, were, um, uh, yeah, most professional people were slaves. Most doctors were slaves. And interesting enough, one emperor, um, can't remember his name, but at one point there was an emperor, gosh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I'm tempted to make up an emperor's name, but I'm, I won't do that to you. Uh, Domitian. Uh, Domitian closed the medical school, the ma major medical school in the first century was in Pergamum. He closed it to slaves. He said, too many slaves are becoming doctors. No more slaves can study at Pergamum. So I think it's a pretty good, pretty good case. But for me, one of the best cases of the fact that, that Luke is a slave is he has a slave's name. Luke is a slave name. And it's really interesting how that happens. Uh, here's your big word for the day. Why use a little word that everyone can understand when you, you can use a big word that nobody understands? It's the word hypochorism, H-Y-P-O-C-O-R-I-S-M. It means nickname. <laughs> but see, you go, from, you go out of here and tell your friends, you know, Luke, he had a hypochoratic name. And your friends will act like they understand. Oh, yeah, I knew that. I heard that. <laughs> but this is how it works. Uh, there are two ways that we name slaves in the first century. The first way uh, is to name them by a quality that we hope they'll have. Uh, 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 Onesimus means useful. Onesimus is a slave. I mean, don't you just want to smack the, the people that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll pay a hundred bucks for this guy. Okay, your new name is Onesimus because I hope you're going to be useful. You just want to smack them. You know what the most popular slave name in the first century was? Philocurios, master lover. You just want to smack them. Okay. Um, that's one way you name slaves. The other way you name slaves is you give them a nickname of your name. 
Okay, my name is Michael. God forbid I was a slave owner in the first century. My slave would be named Mike. Hear it? Luke. Mike. Luke is a hypochorism for Lucian. Paul has a relative named Lucian. He refers to him twice. Demas is a hypochorism for Demetrius. So Luke and Demas are two slaves. And Paul refers to slaves as fellow workers, and he refers to free people as slaves. It's this radical reversal that happens. So Luke, uh, we know he's a doctor, but I think there's a you know, very good uh, chance that he was also a slave. He tells us he wasn't an eyewitness, uh, but what does that mean? That's our new question. What does that mean? He wasn't an eyewitness. What does that mean? That means he has to speak to eyewitnesses and he has to decide with the Holy Spirit's direction which accounts he's going to use and which he's not going to use. Huh? I'm going to use this story. I'm going to use these details with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's, that's who Luke is. What would you expect from a slave writing a book? Well, you would expect a good, a good portrayal of slaves. And 16 of the 35 parables in Luke are slave parables. And guess who are always the good guys? The slaves are always the good guys. He loves those parables, parables of Jesus, right? It's the hired hands that run off and leave the sheep. The slaves are the ones who stay there and die. You know, they're the faithful ones, see? So that's, but the, the primary uh, expression of Luke's being a slave is that um, he loves to compare people and only Luke does this. Luke, if you look at the structure of his gospel, it's stories of pairs of people. It's absolutely fascinating. And what he, it, the pair is a person who's, uh, who marginalized, usually a woman, um, who shouldn't understand what's happening, but always does. And that person is paired with a religious man who should understand what's going on, but never does. And if you start thinking about it, you can go right through Luke and see all the pairs. The first pair uh, is Mary and Zachariah. Who is Zachariah? Priest, Father John the Baptist. Where is he? He's in the holy place. Who's he talking to? Gabriel, a priest in the holy place, talking to Gabriel. Should he understand? Uh, yeah. Does he understand? No. How can I be sure of this, right? And so in God's mercy, he, he's a, he can't speak. Then Gabriel goes to a woman, okay, in Nazareth, Nazareth is the armpit of, of the country. The, the, Nazareth is, the, the city of, the original city of Nazareth is just about as big as the dining hall. Not very big. There are holes in the ground that they built sort of huts over the top of. It's very third world, okay? So Mary's there. Gabriel comes to Mary with a much more unbelievable message. Right, What he tells Zechariah, at least it's biologically within the realm of possibilities. You're gonna, you're, Elizabeth's going to bear your son, he says. So it's, you know, I don't have to get into the details. We all know where babies come from, okay? <laughs> but what does Gabriel tell Mary? See, virgin conception. And she immediately gets it. And what does she say of herself? Behold, the slave of the master. That's what literally, more literally, that's what it means. She uses the word, at least you, Luke uses the word dulane. The Greek word for, for slave is doulos. It's a f feminine form. Behold the slave of the master. See, that's what he's interested in. And that's exactly what you would, what you would expect. Zachariah and Mary, the centurion and the Jews, Simon, the, uh, the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on. The good Samaritan, right? The people who should get it, priest Levite, they don't get it. Who gets it? Samaritan. He's the last person in the world who should get it. And Luke loves that story. And only Luke tells that story. The rich man and Lazarus, the healing of the 10 lepers, the tax collector and the Pharisees. I can go on and on with this. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, the rich men and the poor women. It goes on and on and on. So uh, that's what comes from listening to Luke. 
and, uh, and listening to his life situation and, and who, he, who he is and who he was writing to. His life situation is hard. Frankly, we just don't know. We just don't know. Let me give you the coolest idea. My mentor, uh, this was one of his theories. He believed that Luke was a co- Luke Acts was a cover letter for a collection of Paul's letters that were submitted at his trial. And then it was circulated by the church. That makes re- pretty good sense to me. And, uh, you know, I'm mystical reverence for Bill Lane. So if he said it's got to be right, it's got to be right. Um, if, if, you, if, if, you, if you read it, Luke, as, as a cover letter, it's interesting that, he, that there's always uh, this pronounced uh, the emphasis on the innocence of people. See, Paul is no threat. Peter is no threat. Jesus is no threat to the Romans. And so anyway, that, so that's an interesting. So, so there's Matthew and Luke. Are you good? Okay, am I, am I hosing you down too much? Okay, let's do John real quick. John. We know a lot about John, don't we? We know a lot about John. We know his brother's name. We know his father's name. Come on, All right? Did you know that there's a very good chance that he and Jesus are first cousins? You ever heard this? It's really cool. Let me give you the, the evidence uh, after, uh, during the resurrection, after the resurrection, there, there are three women who go to the tomb. Uh, they are referred some, to sometimes as the, th- as the, th- the three. Uh, the first two are named, so we know who they are. The third person is designated three different ways. Now, that might mean it's three different people. I'll give you that. But it may be that this, this person is the same person and she's being described three different ways and I really want it to be this way. Okay, I really want it to be this way. I'll give you the references. Um, in uh, Mark 15.40 and 16.1, she's referred to as Salome by her name. In Matthew 27.56, she is called the mother of Zebedee's children. Okay? And then in John 19, 25, she is referred to as his mother's, Jesus, his mother's sister. So if his mother's sister, that means Salome and Mary are sisters, if she's Salome, and she's also the mother of Zebedee's children, so that makes her, that makes John uh, Jesus' first cousin, which makes sense. You know, the fact that Jesus would entrust his mother to John from the cross, that now makes sense. I've heard all kinds of bizarre ideas about why he did that. Well, he's his cousin. Of course, he can entrust Mary to his cousin. And he's, he's very young, probably 14, 15 years old when he was initially with Jesus, which explains why he lived so long. When he writes the Gospel of John, Peter's been dead for 30 years. Think about that. Paul's been dead for 30 years. He writes around 90 or, one, 90 or 100, and he's 100 years old as far as we know. Uh, so that's John. I think the most important thing you have to remember about John is he's the last living disciple. They're all gone except John. I, I picture him as kind of, you know, what happens with old people? It's happening to me, actually. You know, you get kind of folded up and your eyes don't work so well. And, and you know what you do? If you ask me, if you were to say, Mike, tell me, tell me about your life, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you about people. You know, there was a man in my church, Mr. Edwards. He really, he meant everything to me. And you know, there was Bill Lane. Bill Lane, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Bill. I've already been talking about Bill. And that's exactly what John does. John is the only gospel that has long passages of Jesus talking to one other person. Only John does that. Only John does that. And you, if you think about it, you can think of those people, right? Nicodemus, Nathaniel, woman taking adultery, and that you know, whole long section, just one other person. Uh, I got a list someplace, but it, it, there, there are about 15 examples of long passages of Jesus talking to just one person. Uh, the, the man born blind, that's a whole chapter about that one guy. And I, I, I like to think anyway, that's part of his, that's due to his age. Maybe I'm just trying to identify with him. Um, the other thing, 
<laughs> the other thing that's important about John is that it's uniqueness. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he knows, he knows those gospels. 92% of John is unique. Now, if 30, 40% of it was unique, we would say, eh, who knows? 92%, something's going on. And what's going on is he knows that you know about the birth narratives. So he leaves those out and he substitutes. But whenever he leaves something out, he substitutes something. That's, that's one of the, that's, that's this example of listening to what the other gospels, you know, what John doesn't say and, you know, listening to what he doesn't say. So what does he leave out? He leaves out the birth narratives. No shepherds in John, no wise men, no star. But what does he give us that no one else gives us? Incarnation. The word, in the beginning was the word. Can you see his mind working? Well, they know about the wise men. I'm going to tell them about the incarnation. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. No parables. And that should bother you. Matthew says Jesus never taught anything except he used a parable. Not a single parable in John. That should bother you. But what does he do? He substitutes. And he tells us the story of Jesus' life as a parable. Only John does this. It's part of the elegance. of John is the most elegant of gospels. Why? He's been teaching this stuff for 50 years. And so in John, the, Jesus, the story of Jesus' life is told parabolically. Jesus will say, I'm the light of the world. Then he opens the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus will say, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Then he'll feed 5,000 people. You see how elegant that is? Mark doesn't have that kind of elegance. It's not supposed to. Mark is writing down what Peter is telling him about his experience with Jesus. John has preached it for all these years. And uh, that, I think that may be one reason we, we, uh, we love John so much. John has funny passages. He knows stories that are funny that he knows you're going to laugh at. The best one is the man, uh, the man born blind who gets healed. Every time you read this verse, people always laugh. And I, I make the point, people have been laughing at that for 2,000 years. When he, he, uh, he looks at the, the priests that are investigating the healing, he says, what, do you want to become his disciples too? Yeah. Everybody always laughs because that's funny. That is funny. And John knows it's funny because he's been preaching it for 50 years. Um, no Lord's Supper in John. How in the world can you tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth without the Lord's Supper? It's not there. But he inserts something that no other gospel writer can bring himself to tell you. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all know about the foot washing. Matthew was there, right? They can't bring themselves to tell you that story because it's still too humiliating for them. Jesus should not have done that. Peter, when Peter says, you know, you ought not to be doing that, Peter's right. It's like when John the Baptist says, you know, you... I shouldn't be baptizing. You should be baptizing me. You ought not to be doing this. Peter says, you ought not to be doing this. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, you don't get me. This is who I am. And only John, all those years later, can bring himself to tell us the humiliating story of the Son of God kneeling and washing the feet of these knuckleheads. Okay, Only John can tell you that story. Um, we can go on and on. Um, one really fun, interesting thing that only John does, this is one of the things that you can learn to listen to, only John whispers. It's the only gospel that whispers. And when I say that, he's the only gospel that explains things as an aside. I think, I think there are three of them in uh, Matthew. Mark has five, but Mark is, exp he's usually translating Aramaic. He's telling you, Talitha kumi, his little girl get up, and that sort of thing. But John will say things like, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do, and so he did it this way. Or the boat was 100 yards from the shore. He's constantly explaining things that he knows you need to hear in order to understand the story. Why? Because he's been telling these stories so long. And uh, that's one of the things I love about John. It's the only gospel that whispers. Okay? So those are the voices of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the other three. We got time. Yeah, I'll go on and let, we'll start to talk about Mark. Let's talk about Mark. That's what we're gonna spend the rest of our week on. Mark, sweet Mark. Mark is the perfect person to write the first gospel. 
absolutely perfect. He's the guy. He's not just some faceless name. He's the person that we, we know a fair amount about. First of all, did you know that he is the nephew of Barnabas? Do you know that? Who's Barnabas? Barnabas is a leader in the church before Paul even came to faith. He's one of the first men to give leadership in the church. And Mark is his nephew. Uh, I love what John Stott said about Barnabas. He said, Barnabas believed in the work that God was doing in a man. Isn't that a nice thing to say about somebody? And here's a bar bet you will never lose. Ask somebody, who's responsible for half the New Testament? People say, Paul? Nope, 23%. Luke? Nope, 26%. Who's responsible for half the New Testament? Barnabas. If it wasn't for Barnabas, we wouldn't have Paul, right? When no one else believed in Paul, who did? Barnabas did. He takes him to the pillars and sort of affirms Paul. And Barnabas has some authority because they'll, they'll listen to him. And when Paul didn't believe in Mark, who believed in Mark? Barnabas did. Okay? So we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have Mark if it wasn't for Barnabas. We might not have Paul if it wasn't for Barnabas. So you will never, I'm not encouraging you to, to bet, but <laughs> if you're p- pressed against the wall and it comes up, you know, it might, be, might come in handy. So he's a cousin or a nephew. We're not exactly sure what that word means, but he's, a, he's related to Barnabas closely. We get that from Colossians 4.10, by the way, if you're writing down references. We know he's a disciple of Jesus. Um, his mother was one of the first disciples. When The first time we hear his name, actually, is when Peter gets busted out of prison and he goes to Mark's house. Mark is the kind of, his mother, the, the church is meeting in her house praying for Peter. And when Peter gets busted out of prison by the angel, he thinks, well, I need to go to Mark's house. This guy who becomes the writer of the first gospel. How cool is that? And I love that image. You know, Peter's in prison. It's just like us. Don't roll your eyes at them because you're just like them. They're praying for the release of Peter. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, Peter's at the door. Well, it can't be Peter. It must be a messenger from Peter, right? No, the the prayers were answered, but they can't believe that their prayers are answered. And I really believe, because I really want it to be true, is that the, 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 the Lord's Supper happened at Mark's house. I have absolutely no evidence for it. I just really want it to be true. If they're there praying at his house, huh? Come on, give me that. Think. Just don't be dogmatic. Never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. Some people thinks, think he makes a little cameo appearance in 1451, uh, when I'm teaching high school students or junior high students, I say, you know, it's, it's okay for you to read all the other gospels. Don't read Mark because there's nudity in it, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear, <laughs> but we know that story, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, a young man has come to warn Jesus and you can reconstruct it. I heard a wonderful reconstruction. The soldiers going out to arrest Jesus pass by the house coming out of Jerusalem, Mark's house. He's in bed. Here's them goes by, jumps out of bed runs to warn them, gets there late, they grab the sheet, he spins away and runs away naked. Okay, that's Mark. And I also believe, again, I just believe this, I want it to be true, that the man who's carrying the water jar that the disciples follow to set up the Last Supper, I think that's Mark. I just think it's a cool idea. You know, I just think it's a cool idea. Okay? But the most important thing you need to know about Mark is that he became Uh, a disciple of Peter. The most important relationship uh, next to Jesus, obviously, uh, if we're going to understand Mark, is his understanding his relationship with Peter. With one voice, all the church fathers agree that it was, uh, 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 that the the early church came to, to Mark and said, please write down Peter's testimony. Okay? They saw the persecution coming. And they asked uh, Mark to write it down. This is Clement of Alexandria around 150. When Peter preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had uh, for a long time been his follower and who remembered his saying, should write down what had been proclaimed. Papias, who I referred to as the the guy who uh, spoke about Matthew, Papias says, and he's 103, 
Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Irenaeus 140 says, after their deaths, Mark 2, the disciple and interpreter of Peter handed on to us in writings the things proclaimed by Peter. Those are very early witnesses. And there, there is no disagreement. The gospel of Mark is the testimony of Peter. And, and uh, the disciples referred to as Peter and his companions, right? Jesus says at the resurrection, go tell the disciples and Peter. The first person Jesus meets in Mark is Peter. So uh, it's, it's, and I think the emotionality of Mark, Mark is, Jesus is the most emotional and we'll count adjectives. That's, we'll be that geeky this week. Uh, there are more adjectives describing the emotions of Jesus and Mark, far more, far more in Mark than any of the other gospels. So that's a very important uh, part of understanding who, who Mark is. Um, oh, yeah, we're almost done. Oh, this is working out just, just great. Um, finally, the life situation of Mark, and we won't, uh, we won't go into it. Uh, we'll, we'll go into it later as we see it uh, in different passages what you need to know about Mark, we know that it was written around 64 because it was written just after the fire in Rome. Uh, Rome burned down 64. Uh, Nero set, set the, the city on fire. He wanted to build himself a house. You, we know Nero, right? We know Nero. He's a nut. He is a nut. He's building a house called the Golden Palace. There's a hallway in his house that's a mile long. And he burns down 11 of the 14 districts of Rome to build this house. And as the, as the fire's being put out, people start realizing that Nero set that fire. And uh, two very important, two of the most important Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, both tell us that Nero had to come up with a scapegoat. And guess who the scapegoat was? Us, Christians. Very important. 64 is another date that most we, we should just have at, the, at, at, you know, at, our, at the tip of our tongues, although I forget it all the time. I can't remember if it's 63 or 64. Um, but that is when persecution first began. And it, it's because we were blamed for the fire in Rome. And Mark was written, my, my professor, William Lane, called it a pamphlet for hard times. It's written to Christians who are suffering persecution after the fire in Rome. And we will see that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. Um, but uh, l l let me show you one of the coolest examples of that. And it's, it's kind of like that passage I read to you from, uh, from Acts. This comes from 1 Peter. Okay? Do you know 1 Peter is really two letters? It's, it's a letter with a hastily written postscript. So here's the end. Uh, here's, here's where the first part of Peter uh, ends. This is 4, 11. Do you tell me if that, this doesn't sound like the end of a letter to you? If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Sounds like the end of a letter to me. And if you read the, what, what comes previous to that, he, he'll mention persecution and suffering, but it's always a distant, you may have to suffer kind of thing, okay? Listen to what happens. It starts back up again. This is verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. He's talking about the fire in Rome. Um, as if something unusual were happening to you, and then he goes on. All of a sudden, he starts using code language. Babylon is a code word for Rome. John uses it. Those who are in Babylon greet you, he says. Nero, he says, Satan, like a roaring lion, is trying to devour you. He's talking about Nero. But this is the close. This, I love the close of this. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends, your, uh, sends you greetings, as does my son, Mark. So that puts Mark you know, right at the scene of the crime, as it were. And if, if you read uh, 2 Peter, there's a statement there where, where Peter says, I've done everything possible so that after I'm gone, you'll be able to remember the things I told you. And I think he's referring to what he and Mark are doing together. So that's, what, that's the life situation of what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to see that 
again and again. When Mark writes his listeners who are suffering persecution, his main, the main way this comes out is he wants them to know you're not gonna suffer anything Jesus hasn't suffered. And you, you, you learn this by listening to what's unique about Mark. When Mark tells the story of uh, the temptation in the wilderness, he is not interested in that story. Two verses. There's no threefold, you know, turn the stones into bread. There's nothing of that in Mark. But Mark says one thing that no one else says. He says, when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was with the wild beasts. Now, why do you think he says that? What's happening to his readers? They're being thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. That's part of the persecution. Yeah. Only in Mark does Jesus' family think he's out of his mind. None of the other gospels say that. Mary and the brothers decide that Jesus is out of his mind and they come to take him away from the crowd. Why does only Mark tell? See, I'm listening what the other gospels don't say. I'm listening what's unique, right? What are his first readers hearing from their parents? You must be out of your mind. A carpenter from Nazareth? You're gonna die for this guy? Right? And Mark wants you to know you're not going to experience anything that Jesus hasn't already experienced. Your, your family thinks you're crazy. His family thought he was crazy. You're being thrown to the wild beasts. He was with the wild beasts. You're being crucified. He was crucified. So we'll, we'll stop right there and, uh, and we'll, jump, uh, we'll jump right in after dinner. <laughs>